Welcome to Integrative Medicine Solutions with Forum Health, the podcast. Our nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers believe in a new standard of healthcare, one that creates optimal health by focusing on partnering with you, understanding your needs, learning about your unique health history, and getting to the root cause of your concerns. Using advanced testing, emerging therapies, and the latest technology, Forum Health providers are at the forefront of integrative and functional healthcare for all. Your journey to better health starts here. Hi, I'm Dr. Siebold out of Forum Health Utah, and today I wanted to welcome you to our podcast. Here at Forum Health, we are a group of functional integrative medical providers. In functional medicine, we really look to identify what the root cause of illness is and focus our treatment at that point. Another really cool thing that really pushed me into functional medicine is that we really try to help people understand how their lifestyle impacts their health and well-being. Unfortunately, I think lifestyle medicine is not something that's very well covered in the traditional medical setting as far as training goes and can really benefit so many of us in, in so many ways. As part of being a functional medicine provider, that allows me to, uh, to be able to provide supplements for patients, to recommend alternative therapies that aren't always covered by traditional insurances, but also allows me the option to do traditional medicine too, to provide prescriptions and, and recommended studies that would be covered by insurance. So as a functional integrative medical provider, we have the option to do both. Today, our podcast is going to be on sleep, and this is going to be the first of four installments over the next four weeks uh, talking about sleep. In lifestyle medicine, we usually like to focus on five main areas. We look at diet, we look at exercise, we look at sleep, uh, we look at stress and relationships and how they impact our lives. So I hope from today's podcast, as well as the, uh, the next three that follow, that you'll have a better understanding of what sleep is why it's important, and how you can start getting more of it. I think all of us uh, could do with a little bit more sleep in life. Today, our, our, we're primarily going to cover what sleep is. We're going to talk about the different stages of sleep, and then we're going to talk about what allows us to actually go to sleep. We're going to talk about sleep pressure and our circadian rhythms. And then lastly, we're going to cover chronotypes. Um, in coming weeks, in week two, we're going to look at a little deeper dive as to why we sleep. We're going to talk about different neurotransmitters and hormones that help us with sleep. And we're also going to look at covering sleep hygiene and how we can improve our, our sleep. Week three is going to focus primarily on sleep disorders, different types of sleep disorders, what symptoms and findings you might expect to see uh, with those different sleep disorders. And then week four is going to primarily focus on how we can treat insomnia and these other sleep-related disorders by using both pharmacologic treatment options, as well as supplements and other nutraceuticals, and then other modalities too that might be a little off-label. So I hope that what, what I have to say, you might find some benefit in and be able to improve your sleep. So today, Sleep 101. Let's jump in first and talk about what sleep is. So first, sleep is a complex biologic process that we enter into, uh, where we enter into a state of reduced mental and physical activity in which consciousness is altered and sensory activity is inhibited to a certain extent. During sleep, there is a decrease in muscle activity and interactions with the surrounding environment are significantly reduced. The scientific means that we use to measure sleep is done through a polysomnogram or also known as a sleep study. A sleep study uses electrodes placed at different parts of the body to measure three primary areas. Number one, we look at brainwave activity, eye movement activity, and muscle activity. 
It's when all three of these things are corresponding together that we we actually get sleep. That's kind of a general what is, but why why do we need to sleep? And this is also going to be very brief, and we'll go into more details about this in our next uh, next episode next week. But the main reason we sleep, uh, amongst many of the physical and, and psychological reasons, is that uh, sleep allows our brain and our body an opportunity to re to rest and recover from the day's activities, right? Specifically, it's in the process of sleep that we're able to sort through and process the day's experiences uh, that, that we had. It allows us to kind of put things back together. It's like the maid at the end of the day who comes in to clean up the house and put things back in the right place and, and make those, those good connections. That's what occurs during sleep. So what are the stages of sleep? So it was, it was in the early 1950s when we discovered that there's, there's two main types of sleep. And these have to do or based off of the presence or absence of ocular movements, right? So first there's non-rapid eye movement sleep or non-REM, and then there's rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. Non-REM sleep is divided into four stages with each stage increasing in the depth of sleep. So stage one and two is generally considered light sleep. And in, during this time where we can be easily awoken, um, we then move into stage three and four, which is deep sleep. And at that time, it's harder for us to actually be awoken uh, at nighttime. We also are able to measure brainwave activity during these stages. We see that in deep sleep or that stage three and stage four, brainwave activity starts to slow down considerably. Uh, and we get these big, deep, slow brainwaves. Uh, they, they occur about two to four waves per second. And that may seem like a lot, but that's actually about 10 times slower than brain activity while we're awake. These deep brain waves just flow over our cerebral cortex going from the front to the back. And it's just over and over, just this repetitive connections. During this time, we'll also sleep, see these little electrical phases called sleep, uh, excuse me, sleep spindles, which are these short synchronous bursts of electrical activity uh, that last anywhere from one to one and a half seconds during this, this non-REM phase of sleep. We know there's a lot of different important functions of non-REM sleep. One of the primary ones is that throughout the day when we're awake, we're constantly receiving sensory inputs from the outside world, right? From the things that we're experiencing, from what we're hearing, what we're seeing. And our brains are forming these neural connections with all of these experiences. It's felt that a key function of the deep non-REM sleep is to weed out and remove any unnecessary neural connections that were made during the day. It's also felt that non -REM, uh, the non-REM slow-wave sleep provides the brain an opportunity for inward uh, reflection, and it allows us to foster or transfer information from the short-term storage sites to our more long-term memory, and allows us to process that and to, to maintain those neural connections. So that's more of the non-REM sleep, right? So when you first fall asleep, you'll slip into stage one and then to stage two briefly, You'll drive into stage three and four for a longer period of time, and then you'll start to come back up into from stage four up to stage three, and then to stage two, and then to stage one. And from there, you'll jump into rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. So REM sleep gets its name from the horizontal shifting of our eyes back and forth that occur while we're sleeping or while we're in this stage of sleep. So during this stage, this is also when we uh, dream. And so sometimes REM sleep is known as dream sleep. We see that the brainwave activity, so when you have that polysomnogram, uh, 
attached to your head. You have those little electrodes put on there. The brainwave activity shows very fast frequency, low amplitude, kind of chaotic brainwaves. And this is actually very similar to when we're awake. And it's because of this, that for this reason, that sometimes uh, REM sleep or dream sleep is also has also been called paradoxical sleep, meaning the brain appears to be awake, but yet the body is fast asleep. Another kind of hallmark feature of REM sleep is that you get a loss of voluntary muscle tone. And so why is that important? Uh, the, I think the big things that we, we postulate are from, from science or suspect is that the main reason we lose muscle tone is so that we don't actually act out our dreams. Dreams can be very vivid, very real for a lot of people. Uh, and so if you don't lose muscle tone, uh, you could end up in a bad situation. So it gives our body a safe, uh, excuse me, gives our brain kind of a safe space to allow our, our brain to dream safely. There's a lot of important functions also associated with REM sleep. So in contrast to non-REM sleep, which is working primarily to weed out unnecessary neural connections, REM sleep actually helps strengthen the neural connections made uh, as a result of the day's experiences. One of my uh, one of my favorite people I like to listen to on sleep is Matthew Walker, and he wrote a book uh, titled "Why We Sleep." He had this to kind of say to kind of help you sort through these, and I thought this is this is really kind of insightful. He says, "When it comes to information processing, think of the wake state principally as reception." or experiencing and constantly learning the world around you. Non-REM sleep, you can think of as reflection or storing and strengthening those raw ingredients of new facts and skills. And then think of REM sleep as integration or interconnecting these raw ingredients with each other, with all past experiences, and in doing so, building an ever more accurate model of how the world works, including innovative insights and problem-solving abilities. So I think it's pretty cool that REM sleep kind of helps us piece together the activities of the day with previous experiences in life. And it helps us form a, a stronger, more accurate, complete picture uh, of life in the world around us. We know that REM sleep is really critical for good cardiovascular health and for emotional resilience. We also know REM sleep is important to help uh, store memories and memory association. Getting more REM sleep helps us with improving creativity and it helps us to regulate our body temperature. So REM sleep has a lot of key and functions too. We won't talk too in depth about all those different things, but I, I want to kind of talk just briefly here about these non-REM to REM cycles, or we may just call them REM cycles for short, right? So the average adult has REM cycles that last for approximately 90 minutes. So when we fall asleep, we briefly pass through stages one and two, which is that light sleep where we can, excuse me, be woken up easily before we pass into stage three and four, which is more of the deep sleep. At roughly 60 to 70 minutes in this first REM cycle, an individual move out of deep sleep and back into light sleep before they move into a short period of REM sleep. And that completes the first non-REM to REM cycle for the night or the first REM cycle. But throughout the night, as sleep progresses and as you experience more and more of these um, REM cycles, the the time in which you are in each of these different stages of sleep starts to change. So with each passing REM cycle, the time spent in deep sleep, stage three, four, gets shorter and shorter, and the time spent in REM sleep gets longer and longer. So in essence, the first half of the night, you're primarily spending most of your time in the deep non-REM sleep with very little REM sleep. And then the second half of the night will be composed more of very little 
if any, deep non-REM sleep, and you'll get lots of that REM dream-like sleep. So there's some clinical implications for this. So if, if you are someone who is needing a typical eight hours of sleep a night, right? So we, we generally say the majority of adults, like 99.99% of adults need seven to nine hours of sleep every night. Say you need eight hours of sleep and your typical bedtime is 10 o'clock. And so you get up at 6 a.m. If you push that back, or excuse me, say you, the next day you have some big project or you got you to head out on a business trip. And so you go to bed at 10 o'clock, but you get up at 4 a.m. You essentially lost two hours of sleep, right? But that two hours of sleep impacts you maybe a little differently than you might consider because it's in that second half of the night where you're primarily getting your REM sleep, your, your dreaming sleep, where you're making these memory associations and, and tying your experiences of the day to, to previous experiences, that time is really going to get cut in half. Uh, and so you'll get still a lot of your restorative uh, deep sleep that, that first half of the night, but because your second half of the night was cut short, you're going to miss out on a fair amount of, of uh, REM sleep. We don't really know for sure uh, why our, our sleep cycles are in this kind of repeatable pattern. But we do know, though, that it really occurs in generally all mammals and birds. They have some form of a REM sleep. So for, for the average human adult, that's about 90 minutes. For birds, that might be a much shorter time. I think giraffes are like 24 minutes, and certain birds are only like three or four minutes. And so that kind of puts us into these, these different cycles, right? So what happens to our non-REM and REM cycles when we do become sleep deprived? Well, there's there's studies have kind of shown two major outcomes from sleep deprivation. So if you were to take somebody and, and, and not have them sleep for an entire night and they go through the whole next day and then they go to bed at their usual time, the first thing we find is that, and this is obviously pretty predictable, but their sleep duration becomes longer. The average person is going to sleep from for about 10 to 12 hours instead of their typical eight hours of, of, of normal sleep. The other big thing that we see is that on that first night uh, of recovery sleep, the non-REM sleep portion is going to consume a large portion of that rebound sleep, and REM sleep will be a little bit shorter uh, than would be expected. However, though, on the ensuing nights, the second or third night, you'll find that a person's REM sleep portion will start to consume more of the night rather than the non-REM sleep, and so your body ultimately will try to catch up. The key thing to understand, though, is that you're generally never going to get caught up or get back to a normal full amount of sleep. So as much as you can prevent uh, missing your sleep every night, boy, that's one of the best things you can do for your health. So let's move on a little bit and talk about how do we actually fall asleep? You know, what drives us to sleep? What allows us to be awake? So sleep is really regulated by two completely separate processes. Uh, that is our circadian rhythm and our sleep drive or sleep pressure. Let's talk first about sleep pressure. From the moment that you wake up, adenosine, which is a little neurotransmitter in your brain, it's actually one of the metabolic byproducts of just brain activity during the day, starts to build up. And as the day progresses and you're awake for a longer and longer period of time, this adenosine level starts to get heavier and heavier. It starts to just to go up. So you kind of think of adenosine as kind of like a barometer on our need for sleep or, or tracking the time that has elapsed since we woke up in the morning. So adenosine is a, a byproduct of metabolic and electrical activity, and it induces us to fall asleep. It, it decreases wakefulness, right? So at about 14 to 16 hours of being awake, adenosine kind of hits this point where it really puts a lot of pressure on us to start to fall asleep. Unfortunately, though, if you haven't gotten very good sleep for multiple nights, that adenosine level may be elevated or more elevated even earlier in the day. 
So adenosine provokes, excuse me, promotes sleep in two different ways. First, there's direct inhibition on regions of the brain that are responsible for wakefulness. In particular, adenosine blocks neurons in the hypothalamus containing orexin or hypocretin and also cholinergic cells in the brainstem that, brainstem that contain acetylcholine. These, uh, these other neurotransmitters, orexin and, and acetylcholine, are really help or more responsible for wakefulness. So adenosine will directly inhibit those centers of the brain. The other way in which adenosine helps us to sleep is that it stimulates the sleep-promoting regions of the brain, and it, and it does that by triggering the release of GABA. GABA acts to inhibit wake-promoting regions of the brain kind of independently, and GABA is one of the primary neurotransmitters that we look at and measure uh, to monitor sleep and, and the, the, the desire to sleep. So it's important to note that as the, as we progress through the day and the more and more, or as we're awake, the longer and longer as the day goes on, this adenosine is building up in our brains. And it gets to a point where it really makes it hard to, to, to stay awake any longer and we go to sleep. It's during the process of sleep that adenosine starts to clear itself out. And so that when we wake up in the morning, adenosine levels are very low or non-existent and we're able to be, to be awake and alert. There's obviously ways that we can kind of counteract this system, and you all know what that is. That's that's called caffeine, right? The way caffeine works is that it competes with the uh, the adenosine sites on different receptors in the brain, and it blocks the ability of adenosine to bind to these receptors and cause us to go to sleep. So it causes us to feel awake and alert. Um, important to note that caffeine peaks at about 30 minutes after consuming it, and it has a half-life that varies from five to seven hours. But some people actually are pretty poor metabolizers of caffeine, and that half-life can go on even longer. And there's some people who are, who are really pretty strong uh, metabolizers of caffeine, and they can burn through caffeine very quickly. And so caffeine doesn't always have a very strong effect on them. Also kind of of significance here, and, and just some interesting side facts, is that caffeine is by far the most widely used psychoactive stimulant in the world. In fact, it's one that we even give our kids, which is, is kind of crazy in my mind. The other important thing to note is that caffeine is the second most traded commodity on the planet, second only to oil. Um, so caffeine is a big deal. It, it's a huge industry um, and it's in a lot of things that can really uh, make it difficult for us to sleep at night if we're taking it at the wrong times. Or it can also be, be helpful during the day when, when we might need it for a little more alertness. So the, the second part of this sleep physiology that helps us to go to sleep is our circadian rhythm. Our circadian rhythm is our 24-hour body, or really it's located in the brain clock, right? The circadian rhythm kind of drums out like a daily and nightly rhythm, which makes us feel awake during the day and tired at night. Interesting is that humans actually generate their own endogenous circadian rhythm, irrespective of outside influences. So what does that mean? The scientists did this study where they would go down to this, these really deep, dark caves, and they would stay there for for weeks on end and they would monitor their circadian rhythm what they found out is that regardless of light exposure or other factors we have this kind of internal body clock right your circadian rhythm uh, that marches out at a regular continuing rate just kind of like a metronome we usually think of our circadian rhythms as being 24 hours because there's 24 hours in the day but in reality uh, the average circadian rhythm is a little bit longer and is about 24 hours and 15 minutes so we as humans generate our own circadian rhythms from inside. In fact, every cell in the human body has different circadian clocks. 
And then the master clock that kind of regulates all of them is located up in our brain in, in a place called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So our circadian, so our circadian clock uh, starts to, it's kind of like this sinusoidal, this up and down wave that comes with each day, right? So it hits its uh, bottom in the morning around 3 a.m. and starts to slowly pick up. Uh, and it stays, I should say that it stays at that bottom point for two or three hours before it starts to pick up. And then about late morning or early afternoon, we ex the, your circadian rhythm is kind of at its peak. And this is where we're at our optimal wakeness, alertness, our brain function is firing in all cylinders. This is where we feel really kind of at our best self. And then around 1, between 1 and 4 p.m., there's actually a little bit of a drop in your circadian rhythm. And a lot of us have maybe experienced this where you're in a, a lunchtime meeting or you just had lunch and you're sitting there trying to do work and you can hardly keep your, your head up, your eyes are shutting, you have a hard time staying awake. And, and there's no question that, that what we're eating at those times certainly can influence our ability to stay awake. But you should also note, though, that part of that is actually just this natural circadian drive that causes us to, to want to sleep. Um, and so I think countries that do these siestas, honestly, I would be I would be all for that. I love a good afternoon nap. In fact, there's nothing that makes a bigger difference in my day and my afternoon and evening and how I feel than just a brief afternoon power nap. We're not going to talk too much about naps right now, um, but but we will cover those here next week. So we, we have this kind of diurnal pattern, right? And so our, our, our a couple of things to, that are important to note is that our circadian rhythm, number one, it doesn't know anything about our sleep drive, the, the buildup of adenosine. Circadian rhythm operates completely independent whether we are asleep or awake. So it's, in essence, then it's, it's slow kind of rhythmic pattern rises and falls strictly just based off what time of day or night it is. Uh, also kind of important to note is that and this is where where things really align. And, and so when our greatest urge to sleep occurs as adenosine, our sleep pressure kind of reaches its peak level. And coincidingly, our circadian rhythm should be reaching its lowest point, which really starts to trigger us to really want to go to sleep. And so when we're keeping a regular sleep schedule, these two factors just align really, really well and really give us an opportunity to achieve, you know, some of the best sleep of our lives. And then in the morning, kind of contrastingly, as we wake up, our, our circadian rhythm is kind of on this upward swing and our adenosine levels are super low, which allows us to jump out of sleep and get into our day and to be awake and alert. And so we really want these two, these two factors, our sleep pressure, which is adenosine uh, buildup, as well as our circadian rhythm to be, to kind of be aligned. But again, they, they function independently of each other. It's just kind of up to us to help them to be at their, their maximal best effort. So a couple of questions here is, is setting our circadian clock. So I said that as humans, we have this intrinsic clock where um, the average duration of our, our clock is 24 hours and 15 minutes. But in reality, there's different outside or extrinsic factors that help us set that internal clock, right? So the big one is, is sun and sunlight, sun exposure. And by far, this is by far the strongest um, factor that helps us set our circadian clock. But there's other reliable external cues that can help us uh, set our clocks. And these are things that are typically repeated at the same time each day. So things like food and exercise, uh, temperature fluctuations, and even regularly timed social interaction 
can be ways to help set these these biologic circadian rhythms in, in our life. Um, kind of of note too, when we're talking about circadian rhythms, there's a number of different rhythms that, that we could be discussing. Obviously, we're talking about the sleep wakefulness rhythm right now. But but another simple example is our core body temperature will go up and down throughout the day as well. Our, our core body temperature tends to peak or be at its highest level in the late afternoon or early evening, and then it hits its lowest point at three or four in the morning. Um, that, that core body temperature, actually, that dropping of the body temperature can be very helpful uh, to allow us to fall asleep as well. Um, there's a number of other different hormonal rhythms and, and circadian rhythms that 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 occur during the day. We won't talk too much more about those, but it's important to note that, that we sleep primarily because of these two separate functions, a buildup of adenosine, which kind of promotes us to go to sleep, and then our circadian rhythm, which is an inward timed clock that, that functions or, or helps us to, uh, to stay in balance. Next, I wanna talk just briefly here about chronotypes. And this is kind of the last part of our, our uh, podcast today. So we as humans have this regular 24-hour circadian pattern, yet each individual's desire and timing as far as when they want to go to sleep and when they wake up is going to be a little bit different, right? We kind of live in this world where we we push most people to go to bed early and to get up early for like social reasons, work-related reasons. And all reality is that that's not really probably the best thing for a good good portion of the population. So you, you've, you've likely heard of the term morning lark excuse me, morning larks and night owls, right? This is referring to, you know, morning larks refer to morning morning type people who love to go to bed earlier, get up in the morning, uh, and they function really well first thing in the morning. Night owls, on the other hand, prefer to go to bed late uh, and then to get up later as well. And these are actually internal clocks that promote this. This isn't because, uh, you know, someone's lazy and doesn't want to get up in the morning. Uh, this is just how their body's designed. And we know that, that our chronotype is actually genetically predetermined. There's these set of genes called clock and period genes that influence whether we'll be a morning lark or whether we'll be a night owl. So when it comes to our general population, about 40% of people fall into this morning lark category, 30% fall into night owls, and the other 30% fall somewhere in between. If you really want to get very technical, you can even break this down even further into like extreme morning types and extreme evening types. But just for general purposes, you know, if we just lump them into to night owls, morning larks, in between, that, that kind of gives us three broad categories, makes it a little easier for conversation. So certainly there's some consequences uh, for not sleeping in harmony with your, your chronotype, right? And, and we see this primarily play out for those people who fall into this, this category of night owls or the, the evening types. So certain consequences for your health. So just these are these are this is just evidence data from from scientific studies, right? So when it comes to morning larks, the average night sleep is about seven and a half hours per night, and that's both weeknights as well as weekends. When it comes to night owls, though, they tend to be in more of this chronically sleep deprived state, where during weeknights, night owls typically are only sleeping about six point six hours per night. But on the weekend, we see that they catch up a lot on their sleep and that they average about eight to nine hours of sleep on the weekend. Now, obviously, it's good that they're able to catch up some on the sleep. But as I said before, you know, to really be at our optimal health and well-being, we want to be ensuring a good seven to nine hours of sleep every night, kind of depending on what our physiologic needs are. 
and, and trying to sleep within our, our body's own, again, genetically predetermined chronotype. And I, I do feel like we're starting to see, you know, some societal uh, changes in this regard, allowing, you know, or, or I guess appreciating more that there are these different patterns for people and allowing people uh, to, to come into late work and maybe stay, stay at late work, excuse me, stay at work later than, than what they normally would. There's also other health consequences, and these are really interesting and intriguing to me. So first off is that people who are night owls, they produce about 50% less deep, slow brainwave activity in their first REM cycle of the night compared to morning larks. And again, this typically comes because they're sleeping outside of their, their genetically pre-designed window in which they should be sleeping. Also of interest is that night owls tend to consume about 102% more caffeine than, than morning larks, right? We see a 30% increase in hypertension in, in individuals who are night owls compared with morning larks. We also see a 1.6 higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes in night owls compared with morning larks. We see that on average, BMIs are higher in night owls compared with morning larks. And then lastly, and this is really one of the most significant ones to me, is that night owls are two to three times more likely to suffer from depression compared to the to morning types. And they're also two times more likely to be treated or to be on an antidepressant, anxiety type medication to, to help with that. So this is this is a big deal, you know, not sleeping within our chronotype um, and, and not a lot, you know, that that prevents us from aligning our adenosine levels with our circadian rhythm and it creates dysfunction in our health and our general well-being. Now, kind of a question, and this is, is has been tested many times, is are we able to shift our chronotype? So if I was a night owl, could I shift to, to my my uh, time and desire for sleep up? In the, in the evening and maybe go to sleep an hour or two earlier. And there's been some pretty rigorous studies done that suggest that it is possible. However, um, it's not done without great difficulty. Even in being able to do that, night owls will tend to prefer to stay up later, even though they're able to start falling asleep a little bit earlier. Um, we see that that's just very, very difficult to maintain because the the individual's natural physiology is wanting to go to bed later rather than earlier. And so I think it, it kind of behooves us to try to look at that and see if there are other ways that we can start to shift our focus and our um, maybe work schedules, lifestyle to allow for what may be more natural for us individually. Anyway, this is the, the end of our first podcast today. I hope you found it beneficial and helpful. Um, we'll be back next week and next week we'll be talking more about the, the importance of why we sleep and we'll get a little, into a little bit deeper dive on some of those different neurotransmitters and hormones and how they function to help us sleep. And then lastly, we'll talk pretty in depth about sleep hygiene, how we can really create a good, healthy sleep environment around us uh, to allow us really for good sleep. Anyway, hope you found this beneficial. Again, I'm Dr. Siebold with Forum Health Utah and we look forward to uh, seeing you next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Forum Health Podcast. Forum Health is the first nationwide network of integrative and functional medicine providers. To learn more about this topic and to find a Forum Health provider near you, visit forumhealth.com.